throughout American history, others have been telling black women's stories. It's our turn. Their narrative is distorted. Ours is a voice for black women to look back and talk back about the oftentimes disturbing, always poignant, unnerving accounts and effects of the intentional intergenerational wounding of black women and girls. Welcome to the Black Girl Back Talk podcast, conversations on racial and gender bias from girlhood to womanhood. I'm your host, Laverne Baker Hotep, with East Liberty Family Center and Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'll be in conversation with extraordinary women from all walks of life who will look back and back talk about tribulation and triumph and impart wisdom pearls that encourages us to claim our generational strengths, which continues to inspire, sustain, and propel us forward toward a future we're destined to create that promises parity, purpose, and healing right now. Let's look back and talk black. Greetings. I'm your host, Laverne Baker-Hotep, and I am thrilled to bring to you the first episode of Black Girl Back Talk, Conversations of Racial Bias from Girlhood to Womanhood. I am a family development specialist at the East Liberty Family Center at Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We work to bolster families in many ways, and one of my projects for the past six years has been the creation and facilitation of Me Too Sister Circle, a self-care and enrichment group for moms. I've been working with women in many capacities over my long career in the nonprofit sector, from directing health and wellness programs, convening women's conferences, to hosting a radio program, Well Woman Radio Retreat, to facilitating retreats for women. I facilitated trauma trainings for the Center for Victims in Pittsburgh and traveled to Liberia and South Sudan to co-facilitate trauma response trainings in refugee camps. I have a deep interest in historical and cultural trauma and its effects, especially among Black people. In 2019, I attended a trauma training series focused on Black girls convened by Gwen's Girls, a Pittsburgh organization dedicated to making it possible for girls to reach their highest potential. Participants were asked to come up with a project or program that could make a difference for Black girls as it relates to trauma. So since my work is with women, I thought, well, We were once girls, so I would like to hear from women about how racial bias affected us as girls and continues to do so as women. So I combined my love for radio and for working with women and came up with this podcast project. We received a grant from Boys Foundation and then later from FISA Foundation and began to work. We at the beginning, collaborated with Carlo University, who provided access to their state-of-the-art communications lab, and then COVID hit. That caused delays in ways that we could never have thought of. But here we are, finally, ready to talk to you and the many women who will be a part of these conversations to examine ways that racial bias has affected our lives as girls and How do these biases continue to negatively impact us? Trauma has been a fixture in the lives of Black women since our enslavement in this country. Recognizing, acknowledging, and understanding the impact of trauma is essential to our well-being. So in this podcast, we'll also bring discussions which focuses on becoming aware of the historical and contemporary trauma that we've experienced, examining its impact on us, and developing greater appreciation for who we are as we transcend the trauma and manifest our greatest potential. So we're going to start out with our first guest today, and I'm very, very excited because I've been wanting to talk to this person for a long time. She probably didn't know that until now. (laughs) So I'm very, very happy to introduce to you Dr. Angela M. Reynolds. She is the CEO of the YWCA Greater Pittsburgh. Now, 
Angela comes to YWCA Greater Pittsburgh from United Way of Southwestern Pennsylvania, where she serves as Senior Director of United for Families and 211, while also teaching as an adjunct professor in the Public Policy and International Affairs Program at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College. Angela, or Dr. Reynolds, began her career testing for housing discrimination through the Fair Housing Partnership before embarking on as assistant professorship at the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health and International Affairs. There, she taught statistics, public policy, and research methods, and conducted research on racial disparities in housing and criminal justice. Angela is a recipient of the Fair Housing Partnership's Open Doors, Open Minds Award, which she received in 2006. A native of New Haven, Connecticut, Angela has called Pittsburgh home for many years. She holds a PhD in public policy analysis from Heinz School at Carnegie Mellon University, an MS in statistics, also from CMU, and a BA in mathematics with a minor in sociology from Bryn Mawr College. Well, now, hey there, Dr. Reynolds. Hello, it's, it's, it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's uh, really, really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with me this morning. We've heard all about the accomplishments that you made and continue to make as an adult. Let's talk a little bit about little Angie. Tell us a little bit about your girlhood and who you were as a little girl. That's a great question. And it's also one that actually brings a lot of emotion for me because when I think of myself as a little girl, I can't help but thinking of growing up in New Haven, Connecticut um, until a couple of years ago, my mother was still in the same house. I have a, an older sister, five years older than me, and also think about my, um, my father. And both my mother and father were from Augusta, Georgia, and they were part of that group that migrated up north. And so the reason I'm saying that is because my sister and my father are, my biological father are no longer with me. And so when I think about who I grew up with as a little girl, and I think about where I am now as an adult, two of the major influences of my life are no longer there. And the one who is, is now suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. Little Angela was, in, in many ways, a little spoiled, I will say. Um, I found out a lot of things later in life, but uh, my mother had wanted to have a big family. She's one of nine. And after me, she wasn't able to have any more children. So there was a lot of doting on me and a lot of spoiling. And also my sister and I, five years apart, so was very much treated as the baby for a long period of time. Little Angela also was kind of trained by her father to be independent and to be able to do anything that a boy could do because my father was hoping for a boy. He was not disappointed that I came along, don't get me wrong, but um, he's, he was, you know, he's a big man, football player, coached what was back then called midget football. So he was a, he was a football coach. He, he worked as a financial a analyst for Pratt & Whitney Aircraft. So there were many things that he planned to pass on to his son. And I came along. And so I learned how to do a lot of things that are that I, I actually love because it breaks gender norms, but that people put towards um, typical gender norms. Little Angela also was very active um, in her church. I continue to be um, to this day. The joke always was, you know, I was the one crawling underneath the pew and our church was about 25, 30 pews deep. So I would crawl from the back to the front and, and, and vice versa. And, you know, singing in the in the youth choir. And then if you look at Angela, when she got a little bit older, it's coming to an understanding of, of self and who I am. I really loved math. I really loved art. Felt I had to choose between the two and ended up choosing to pursue math, as you can tell from my mathematics degree. But there was that, that crossroads of, of which way do I go and went to an all girls high school, vowed I would not go to an all women's college. You can see 
from my bio that I did. <laughs> so it did show me that, you know, never say never, because there are things that, that you will do in life sometimes that you think that you will never do. And then also one who was, you know, very outspoken throughout high school. I did junior achievement again at my my father's unctioning, his company, Pratt & Whitney, sponsored a, a junior achievement company. So again, did that for for four years. So was very, very actively involved in a lot of things as a young person and basically a lot of leadership opportunities. So, I mean, at that age, you're like leader over the youth department <laughs> and leader over, you know, the choir, but still um, being being a leader at that young age and having that instilled in me, understanding that a lot of support from my parents, support from my church, that extended community, the village that, that comes around you, all of that. But I, I will say when I was in grammar school, I grew up, you know, understanding a lot of the things that my parents had gone through, but not really understanding as a child, a lot of the things that my parents had gone through in the South and was on a bus one day and a little girl called me the N-word. And that was my first fight. You know, afterwards, our, our parents got together and we and we talked, but it was an eye-opening experience to to race in America. And that this person that I thought was my friend had the audacity to, to not only call me out of my name, but to call me something so repulsive. And what does that mean? And, and how that then shaped my perspective and not going through life thinking that everything is just going to work out and everyone's just going to appreciate this beautiful chocolate skin that I have and understanding that at that moment, I needed to think about things a little bit differently, still be my wonderful, powerful self, but also understand that not everybody would be accepting of, of, of that. Well. I'm not promoting fighting. I'm just, I'm just being honest about it. Well, here, look, here's why I'm stunned. Because I experienced the exact same experience as a girl. A fight on the bus when my friend Connie Ann called me the N-word. The thing that she did was she started crying after she said that. I mean, profusely. She just couldn't stop crying. And she went home and told her grandmother what she had done. And her grandmother called my grandmother and said, let's have a talk. And we had this talk, but her grandmother in her confusion and trying to figure out how to remedy this brought out a dictionary to try to show me the word could mean something else. And that uh, I could, I should call her granddaughter the same name. My grandmother absolutely forbid me to do that. But this little girl cried and cried and cried and couldn't stop crying. And it seemed like it hurt her more than it did me. And one of the things that I, I thought about years later, after when she and I talked years later about it, is how, of course, she learned this word at home. And how learning racism for white children takes away their humanity as, you know, as children. And that she knew somewhere in her soul that there was, this was wrong. Yet it came out of her mouth without even thinking. Yeah. And, and I will say as much as our parents try to resolve that friendship, we were never the same. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So that was your first experience of race as a girl. And so, so when you say personally, there must there were other experiences that let you know that something is not quite right here. Something is there's something that's not equal going on. Where did you see that? So I would say definitely looking at my parents and hearing them speak and hearing many things that they were going through. At a young age, I knew that my mother was in a high profile position at the hospital. I mean that was a, was a clear understanding, even though I may not have fully grasped what it meant to be chief of staff of cardiopulmonary technology at the hospital that she was at. I, I knew that it was proper because I knew that she had workers that, that were under her. As a teenager, I started to see a shift and a change in her. I mean, here's this wonderful, powerful woman who's leading an entire department at one of the major hospitals in New Haven and she was coming home and going straight to the piano and playing for hours. Wouldn't talk about work. Didn't talk about work. 
you know, as we sometimes are as children, we we listen to conversations that grown folk have and would listen as she would talk about the people that were that they were bringing in white males for her to train and slowly and slowly stripping her department from her and putting it under them to the point where she no longer had a department. And the people that she trained, these white males now became over her. And she she took it the, the distance for as long as, as she could and ended up accepting an early retirement. But again, just watching the strain that that had on her. Also, as I mentioned, my father was a big man. Um, and so he, when he played football, he played tight end. <laughs> so just understanding what that means. And also, I mean, tall and, and big as well. And just even seeing reactions of, of people when he would walk into a room, just automatically clinching. And you see it as a child. And when you're really, really young, you may not fully grasp it. But as I got older, I, I, I began to grasp it. And even expectations, which is really interesting that people, the way they spoke to him sometimes was not reflective of the vast intelligence that he had. Like they just presumed he didn't know anything because of of his size. And and I will also attribute some of that to his race as well. But here's a man who's a financial analyst Mm -hmm. and coming through. So even with them um, leaving the South, was a concrete decision. My mother was very active in the civil rights movement. She would, she was the one, you know, as, as I heard, heard them talk later, she was hosting the, the planning parties at her house. Like her mother would, wouldn't march. She wouldn't protest, but she would serve sandwiches for the planning party. You know, she's the one that was sitting there doing, doing the sit-ins. And when they just couldn't take the racism in the South anymore, they moved North, but there's racism in the, in the, in the North as well. And I also do remember as a teenager, um, going to a restaurant where we were not seated and watched as, as, as whites who came in after us were seated and went to the, the restaurant management, brought this to their attention and nothing happened. And we ended up having to leave. So there are, and I, I could go through, um, several examples and, and several stories, but I will say, the one that impacted me the most that I don't really talk about that that much, but it's it's one where I you know got up the nerve to try out for the for the high school musical. And it was the sound of music. And, you know, I, as a as a musical, I love the sound of music. So I tried out and the person who was doing the casting said that he was going to stick as close as possible to the look of the sound of music. And I was one. I was the only person of color who had tried out for that musical. And I knew the only thing that I could get was the chorus. And at that moment, I stepped back because I don't look like any of the Von Trapp children. I never will. <laughs> it's not <laughs> going to happen. With that statement, just was, was crushed um, because you don't see anyone who is a person of color anywhere um, in, in that musical. So it's, it's interesting. So what does that bring up for you, even now, when you talk about those incidences that you experienced as a girl? It brings up a sadness because of opportunities missed. And this may seem like a minor thing, but I look at the, there's the, I don't know if you um, remember the Cinderella that was done with Brandy and with Whitney Houston and um, Whoopi Goldberg. It's a diverse cast and they don't explain any of it. (laughs) <laughs> they don't explain how these people came together to produce this child that that looks this way. They're just looking at the the talent. And when I think about that experience, is you don't know who I would be in that in that musical. I mean, I could be the you know I could be one of the nuns. I could you know I I mean I definitely wouldn't be uh, Maria. But you don't know the contributions that you missed out on because you did not give me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then I put that on the backdrop of junior achievement. And so, as I mentioned, my father's company, they had a, a junior achievement company for four years and I was able to rise up through the ranks, starting as secretary and then become, becoming the financial secretary. And I was president for, for two years. And in that space, I had tremendous support and I have a picture and some people have seen it. Um, when I, when I show pictures for the Athena Award, some people were able to, to see me and 
sea of white faces all around me. I'm the only person of color. Uh, my, my father wasn't actually in that picture. But at that point in time, it's like, yes, standing my own as a black woman. Oh, I was also surrounded by a bunch of males, too. So <laughs> I have to say that. But also them recognizing leadership is leadership. And it did not matter my gender or race. Pretty glaring and very obvious that there are still disparities that, that need to be addressed in terms of why weren't there more of us in the company to, to begin with. But that said, it was very, a very, very different experience. Is it because they knew my father? Who knows? But the, I, I look back at that and I look at where I am in a leadership position today. And I will say that it, it gave me the courage I needed to be the only black or brown face in the room and to sometimes be the only female. Which we experience a lot being the only one in the room, both as a black and female. Living at the intersection of racism and sexism is far from easy. We're discriminated against for being black, for being women, and we exist in both identities at the same time. So you talk about the experiences at work and despite the challenges that we've experienced at work. When you think about black women, you think that we're we're highly educated. We are the ones who are moving toward entrepreneurship faster than any other any other group. We mobilize our communities, our friends, our families to to vote and to be you know, a part of that whole system. There are so many things that we do. We face and we face this variety of microaggressions and all of that every every day. So I want to go back to something you said earlier. You talked about your beautiful chocolate face. And so I want to talk about your beautiful chocolate face because that is something that we've had to grow up either loving or hating because of what people have said about who we are based on the color of our skin. And so as a girl, did you have to face any of that type of discrimination out in the world, within your own family? How did that play out for you? So short answer, yes. Um, There was a preference for lighter skin. I came to appreciate just the beauty and the differences of the hues. And a lot of that came from like not actually seeing it so much in school because I was educated in predominantly white schools for pretty much all of my, my education, but at church on Sunday morning. And the church that I belonged to in, in New Haven was one of the larger churches. And so we're, we're talking several hundred members that, that you would see on a, on a Sunday and coming to appreciate all of it. I didn't, from a personal perspective, dislike my color because it looked just like my my parents and coming through and like you go to family reunions reunions and yes you you see differences but just oh my goodness just just the beauty of of creation and and who we are as as people and coming to to see how all things all things come together the challenge as a young girl as I developed early and when you think about how there is that adultification of young of young black girls that happened to me. And so there were many times that I would have older men, often white, when I was 13 years old, trying to to talk to me in, in ways that were that were completely inappropriate. And so coming coming of age can be difficult for girls, period, but I think it's particularly difficult for black and brown girls because of longstanding histories of sexism, of mistreatment of of black girls and of black women, of expectations about where we are and and stereotypes that are placed on us. And I will say that it was, I had more challenges there than I did related to my skin color. Well, that is so interesting to talk about this adultification of Black girls, because that is something that happens all the time. And it has been a danger to to us as as Black girls. Black girls are perceived as more adult-like and less innocent than white girls at school and in other environments, as you pointed out. And 
even within our own communities, oftentimes we're considered fast, you know, that word, which we don't hear much anymore, but girls are being fast and trying to solicit attention. And we're accused of that when we have no control over how our bodies develop. And then even things of when we stand up for ourselves, we're told that we're talking back, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I gave this program, this back talk part of it, because, (laughs) because, yeah, we're told, you know, don't give me no back talk, but at this time, it's time for us to talk back and do some back talk about what has occurred with us and then how do we move forward in, in healing. But yes, I'm so glad that you brought that up. And in schools, Black girls are five times more likely than white girls to be suspended at least once or more so than white girls. So these are issues that Black girls have to contend with. And again, that impact us considerably still as as adults. So in growing up, in in your becoming a woman and having experience, you had really positive experiences with family and community and church. These are oftentimes the the mainstays. Those are the, the things that give us foundation and uphold us when out in society, there may be a different feeling about us. But when we have that kind of village community to come back to, it really helps to sustain us. And I know that from my own experience. So now here you are as the the CEO, which is one of those rarities that happen in our world as Black female CEOs, but looking at issues of racism and and with an organization that says, our mission is to eliminate racism. That's a huge, big, big, big deal. So how did your, your life take you or bring you to this point of being involved in this organization and committing to this work? I'm not sure how to answer that question. So I'm, go- I'm going to answer it from, from this perspective. It's not something charted. And I am one who I, I believe in divine interventions, but I also believe in, in discernment and that, that God opens and opens doors and that he provides um, opportunities. So I, I look at this position as a series of many doors throughout life that were opened that I was, I was able to walk through. That said, there are so many people who poured into my life that helped get to this point. And I'll be honest, it's, it's very daunting to not only think about eliminating racism and empowering women, but also to be at the helm of, of an organization that's over 150 years old. When I think of the, just even the decision to apply, that was a, a, a thought process. And I brought members of the village around me to even help with, with that decision. And again, I, I'm not taking credit for a lot of things that happen, even some of the accolades and, and awards that I've received, because I believe that there is a, a very, very strong team behind me. I'm extremely grateful for being able to be here at the organization. I'm grateful for the board for, for seeing something in me to, to bring me into this position of leadership at this time. I also believe it was for this time. And that's just something that, that is innate within me. And, and I, and that just, it will not not go away. Um, I have a, a colleague of mine who I also consider a friend who said, I really think you should apply for this position. And there were periods of doubt. Am I ready? And I also think back to a lot of things that we have as, as women that we're often you know, at this place of I'm going to have everything completely perfect 100% before I move forward. And there are, you've seen the research studies and the research studies show that, that men don't have to get to the hundred percent before they go through and they pursue. And, and it's like, so here I am in this position, knowing the research and still finding myself saying, do I have everything a hundred percent together and, and in place? Do you think that that has to do any with us being told that we have to be twice as good and 
three times better and work all work is hard work and, and have yes. it all together right all and, and, together and all those factors coming in I just brought my mother to live with me I moved her from New Haven Connecticut again have brought her in to, to to live with me and knew that her her disease is not reversible that things would get progressively worse also at the time like my daughter's 12 now while I have three adult children and I wasn't at that stage where they were all at the house and I still had the caregiver being like the caregiver of, of my child as as well and when I you know starting the thinking of this process of coming in and had just lost my 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 sister and it's like you know life isn't all together um is this is this the time but then following that that voice within me that that said go for it um, and and to to have that that placement. So people that know me know, um, call me Angela. And I have, I, I won't um, say who it is, but when I left United Way, there was one of my colleagues who I greatly appreciate so much who said to me, because I didn't use the PhD when I was at United Way. And she told me how disappointed she was. And this was after me being there for years <laughs> and made me promise that I would put the PhD when I went to YW. And I've had the PhD since 2000, right? Sounds, um, and there why, were some people who didn't know I had a PhD. Why did you decide not to use it? There's a, a shift that happens when people see me as doctor instead of just Angela. There's a shift in how I'm treated. There's a shift in how I'm perceived. And there are some of these things that are positive and actually contributed to the doctorate, which is like there are invitations to tables that I probably would not have been invited to if those three letters were not behind my name. And I look at it and I, I say, I'm no different than anyone who does not have those, those three letters other than I went through more education, um, more, more years, and I you know, wrote a thesis and I defended it. What she explained to me was what it signaled for other people, and that she wanted me to make sure that I went out with it because it shows what we as Black women not only can achieve, but do, right? We often speak of, you know, Black women can do this and Black girls can do this. Like, no, we're, we're doing it and, and demonstrating and, and showing that and being forth. But yes, there are those moments where you're in a room and again, like you see it as soon as, soon as someone says doctor, there is an expectation of who I am. Yeah. <laughs> but when you knew me as Angela, you were fine, right? Having, <laughs> having this, this conversation. And so, yes, I didn't want to be treated as, as I didn't want to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. But it's not that I'm not proud of it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of being at Carnegie Mellon University. I had some very wonderful experiences there. Great mentors, great um, dissertation advisor, um, such a powerful impact on my life and all the things that she also pushed me forth in terms of doing. So getting to the place of, of owning that. So what about experiences of racism and, and other biases as, as relates to race during your work life? How did you experience that? I've been very fortunate. I haven't had many job experiences. So I should say that up front. And the first one that I had as I count as like my real job that wasn't I mean, Wendy's, don't get me wrong, was a real, real job, but I mean, that was in high school. And I um, also worked as a kind of like an administrative assistant for a, a group home when I was in college and, and did some jobs in college. So the one that I count first is actually my, my job at Fair Housing Partnership. Prior to finishing up my degree, I did work for Freddie Mac in McLean, Virginia. I took a a break from my PhD to work there. And I it wasn't experiencing racism on that job. It was seeing race and gender disparities in leadership that had an impact on me. So nothing personally against me. They actually were trying to get me to stay and be promoted. And I looked up and I said, okay, so there are white males in leadership. They have PhDs. Let me go back <laughs> and finish my degree, but nothing personally against me. But Fair Housing Partnership I did have like a really great experience there, but um, witnessed that there were those around who did not. 
and not at our particular organization, but in, in surrounding um, in surrounding partnerships and getting to this place of understanding that we need to provide a, a more just workplace and a more equitable workplace. At United Way, I had a wonderful opportunity of being able to be over programs that were supporting women and supporting financially struggling families. Again, being able to see where many people had experienced discrimination and how that impacted their their current life was definitely very much supported, supported in that environment as well. I'm not saying that there isn't racism that exists. I was fortunate to be in supportive environments. University of Pittsburgh is a difficult place to work. I had a wonderful support system in that place as well. So now when you think about the contribution that you want to be in the world as it relates to racism, this this thing that impacts our world at a greater and more detrimental level than most things, you know, that impact especially the black community, but black people, but People all over the world are impacted by race, by racism, those who are the oppressors as well as the oppressed. So when you think about your contribution to making a difference in that way, what do you say? I see it as twofold. So the fact is structural and systemic racism exists. I don't even argue that point, right? For, for me, it exists. And because of its persistence, we see disparities and we see the impact of that. So when I say that I see it twofold is that I think it's important for us to address the effects of those disparities. The fact that when you look at COVID and you look at how this pandemic has impacted families, that women have been impacted more, that women of color have been impacted most that when we look at the struggle to make ends meet, and I think about our data as an organization, we were predominantly serving Black and Brown women before the pandemic. We're predominantly serving Black and Brown women now. And when you think of the fact that for Black and Brown women, that in many cases, like over like 90, 90% of them are the primary if not so breadwinner in their in their household. And you think about issues of occupational sexual, you could go down the, the myriad of lists and health disparities. Those disparities exist. So I believe it's important to address the impacts of those disparities. And the second part of that is to then work upstream to also dismantle those systems that allow those practices to persist. And what I've likened it to with other people is to say, I, I'm, I'm not going to look at a mother and say, well, I know you're having challenges feeding your child, but I'm working on the system. Both of those are, are needed. I think it's important for us to center women of color as we're looking at how are we addressing policies. An example of that is, is equal pay. It's one that we're engaged with now with um, Black Women's Policy Center and Women and Girls Foundation as we have our pay equity campaign. We make it very clear that the Equal Pay Day in March is not a celebration. It should be happening. We should have equal pay the year before. It happening in March just is an example of the disparity, but it's not in March for all women, right? And so we look at October 21st will be Equal Pay Day for Latino women. And we came through in August. We came through in September. We're going to be back again on the 21st to highlight these disparities. But at the same time, then what are those policies and practices that need to be put in place so we're not back here every year talking about March and August and September and, and October, and we actually do start moving towards December. So when you ask me about that, you know, that role in eliminating racism, I think, you know, first, we as a society all need to recognize that it exists and we Shouldn't come through and, and, and debate that, but how do we come together to not only heal, but also to make reparations and to address what we're seeing on, on, the, on the other end that is causing Black women to be more likely to die from, from breast cancer, even if the incidences of diagnosis are, are the same. So 
And, and I've had someone ask me, like, so why are you breaking out black and brown women? Like, why can't you just put all women together? Because our experiences aren't the same. Right? And, and, it's, and it's sad. And the, the fact that we're, we want to gloss over that is, is a bit troubling. It's heartbreaking to me. So I, I, I did talk to you about my, my mom, but she's also a breast cancer survivor. And I look at what that means for my girls. I have out of my four children, two of them are girls. So not only do they have the fact that they're black women and what that means for their incidences, but if we are diagnosed to go through knowing that we have a higher probability of dying, why is that? And when we look at health disparities within the black community, when you look at the more maternal mortality rates. I mean, so we, we could talk for days about all of those issues, but to be able to come through and say that it's important for us to, to center women center women of color in this discussion as we talk about how do we address gender equities, to me, the intersection of race and gender, and as you put it, the intersection of racism and sexism are important topics for us to continue to not just discuss, but start implementing recommendations that have come through various studies that have made it clear that these are some of the ways that we can start to alleviate some of the impacts. And so having girls, you mentioned having daughters. And so how do you talk to your daughters about issues of race and guide them through that is one question. And then if you were to talk to little Angela now, what would you tell her? What would you say to her about issues of race and racism. So in guiding my daughters, they're different. I want to take this opportunity to also um, make it clear something that I know that you already know, but to make it clear that when we talk about black and brown women, we're not saying that it's a monolithic experience, right? So we also have differences of, of experiences. So my children, so my eldest daughter and my youngest daughter, they're, they're, they're very, very different. My eldest daughter, she's She's more bold than I am. I love it. She's she's an she's an activist. She is one that has a has a much better sense of self at her age than I had at her age. She's also growing as a as a young adult woman. So when I speak with her now, I can have those conversations, but understand that she's my oldest. And so I'm also navigating what it means to talk to my child as an adult (laughs) and respecting the fact that you're an adult. But it's still my child. Right. <laughs> so how do we have these conversations? So with, with her, it's really more of a listening to where she is and what her thoughts are and how do I support her? Because I know that she is, you know, she's she's brilliant. I mean, all of my children are, right? but I know that she's brilliant and that she's already worked through some things in her mind. And when she comes to me, it's that additional perspective and guidance. And so understanding that, whereas my 12-year-old, she's still coming to a knowledge of race and racism. And so she's, she's reading now and she's seeing things on the news. When, when George Floyd was murdered, it's like having those conversations, but also, you know, weighing out, like, where is she in terms of the trauma that's associated with seeing this all the time? And where do I step in and, you know, getting cues from her to make sure that I'm saying to her that you're beautiful no one should be treating you differently because of your race. And then getting from her, like, are you experiencing that? And what are your thoughts and feelings about those, those issues? So it's two different stages in life for them. And I mean, an interesting one for, for me having that second time around her and thinking of like the fact that I'm older with her at 12 than I was when my eldest daughter was 12. Speaking to my younger self, regarding racism, I would tell my younger self to not be afraid to, to speak. When you talk about microaggressions, and, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, is that if we exhibit too much confidence, it's not taken as confidence, confidence is taken as arrogance, or and in some cases, it's taken as aggressiveness, whereas someone of a different gender could say the same exact thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not perceived that way. Correct. So as my younger, talking to my younger self, I would say don't don't shirk and, and don't step back. There are some things that I've put in place that is just a natural part of me now that 
I've done so that I don't come across that way. And I was speaking with, so I'm speaking in my natural voice, but I was speaking with, with someone and I said, you know, when I look at some of the panels, I noticed that, you know, like when I was talking, my voice went higher and I would have these conversations and that's not my voice, <laughs> right? Because I didn't want to come across as, you know, as being too aggressive and not getting in com- comfortable in, in, in who I am because it might be perceived in, in a particular way. And I would tell my, my younger self to be authentic, be who you are, and don't be ashamed of, of that. Take opportunities to grow and to learn from others and to also hope for, not just hope for a better world, but to work towards it. Yes, and give a little back talk, you know? Come on. <laughs> I don't want the people listening to think that I didn't get into any any trouble as a child. So I was constantly in detention because I was the one that's talking to the teachers saying, like, why? <laughs> like, why do you have to? I don't understand why I have to do this. And my and my parents would have to go up to the school. And, and it's it's interesting because now that, that you're saying, like, I, re, I remember the, my first experience of my parents going up to the school. I was in first grade. I can remember, like, not everything about the conversation, but I can remember being in that room with, with my parents. And we talked about this story for years, which kept it fresh in my memory that there was an assignment at school. Again, first grade, I'm at this Catholic, Catholic school in first grade. And their question was, what did you have for breakfast? And remember, my parents are from the South. So for I said I had pork chops with rice and gravy. <laughs> and the teacher called me a liar. And then I, of course, like I, I did, I talked back to the teacher and then I got in trouble. And then they went and they um, they talked to my parents. And after my parents found out why I got in trouble and, and they said, well, actually, that is what we have. What we have. <laughs> but also yeah. um, my father um, said a lot more than that. And I, and I, I was never well, I shouldn't say I was never mistreated by that teacher, but I don't recall um, being mistreated by that teacher again. And he made it very clear. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that she was inappropriate. <laughs> so yeah, a little rice and gravy for breakfast. I know about I know about that. Add some biscuits to that too. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I remember getting in trouble in school just for I was a little older. I was in junior high and I wrote black power on pieces of notebook paper, passed it out to all the kids on the bus, most of whom were white. And they all held it up. You know, and I got in trouble and went to the principal. The bus driver took me off the bus from the back. He went to the back of the bus and told me to get off and took me, drove the whole the whole school, the whole bus the next day to the high school rather than the junior high. So he's taking me to the highest level to, you know, report me. So he takes me in and the principal has the, the paper and the principal says, what's the meaning of this? We don't have this kind of trouble you know, at our school and suspended me for three days for doing that. And I just was devastated because I love school. And I had to go and tell my mom that I was thrown out of school. And my mom, who was very quiet and hardly spoke up for herself, marched me back there the next day, got me back in school with her talking to them about the fact that St. Patrick's Day, when you go to school, that school on St. Patrick's Day, everybody has to wear green. I don't care who you are, you have to wear green. And that I wore green on St. Patrick's Day, like everybody else, and that this wasn't trouble, that I was showing pride in my race. And insisted that I come back to school that day. That really shifted everything for me to have her stand for, take a stand for me in that way around this issue. I'm sure I became militant Millie, which they, you know, since since then, and, and advocate and standing up for who we are, you know, right. from that point on. But yes, advocating for yourself and having parents advocate for you. Yeah, and others, you know, that's great stories. Very wonderful similarities. Now, I want to ask you about the art. What happened with that? How do you use get out your artistic self? I do it through through church. And so I'm when we have a production, we haven't really been doing them lately, but, you know, designing the sets. And so many of the things I was put when I had time, 
I would actually build them and put them together my, myself. So we would have like full, full pageantry and, and things that I would draw there. I wish I had taken advantage of that in, in college and gone that route. That's probably something else I would tell my younger self is to find a way to pursue math and art in college. I mean, I might have had to stay a little bit longer because sociology was critical for me in terms of where I was able to to go. But yes, I was I was a very I was a very good artist, and now I just don't have the time. Ah, so at some so, point, yes, that that'll probably be my retirement thing. Going back to yes, design. your refirement where you will refire after doing this awesome work that you're doing now. And actually, and that's one of the things my parents did, because as you talk about, you know, your mom advocating for you, my parents realized I was doing a lot of the back talk and getting in trouble because I was done with my work. So what they said was give her a sketchbook (laughs) when she's done with her work, either give her more work or and they sent me in with a sketchbook and told the teacher that they needed to let me draw. But I mean, back to your issue of, you know, suspensions and detention. Why are you giving a child detention because they're done with their with their work? That's not appropriate. So, but anyway, it's it's um, it's also one thing that furthered my art was I did a lot of sketches. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I hope you uh, will pursue that at some point, though. Though uh, having Black women pursue math is really something that is very ancient. We may think that that's well, it certainly has been a maybe a, a rarity that we talk about, but math is something that numbers and arithmetic and counting and all that is something that was founded by Black women, ancient, ancient Black women. So we have to really teach girls this so that they don't become, uh, you know, afraid of math and feeling like, oh, that's not our thing. We get pushed away from it. And uh, that is... It is definitely our thing. Definitely. I'm a witness. (laughs) For sure. And I'm a numerologist. And so my interest is in the quality of numbers more Mm. so than the quantity. And so I have a love for numbers in a whole other way that one of these days we'll have to talk about. So thank you so much, Angela, Dr. Angela Reynolds for being with us today on this first episode of Black Girl Back Talk. You are the epitome of someone who did some back talk and uh, (laughs) are making a difference in the world in a most important way. So thank you again for your time and for the contribution that you are being in the world. Thank you. So nice. And I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black Girl Back Talk, conversations on racial bias from girlhood to womanhood. And thanks to our sponsors, Poise and FISA Foundations in Pittsburgh. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the program on your favorite podcast player. If you have comments or want to tell me your story, you can email me at blackgirlbacktalk at gmail.com. Peace.